0: All right, let's go to Mark chapter, uh, no, that's not right. Mark chapter 12, go to Mark chapter 12. I had some issues with my PowerPoint tonight, and so I got some of it resolved and some of it I didn't, so just bear with me. We may have to do this the old-fashioned way, and I just preach, and y'all listen. Um, but you'll remember, you'll remember in, in Mark, we went through, there, there were three lessons that we went through the lesson of the missing fruit, the lesson of the mystical fraud, and the lesson of the mountain moving faith. You remember all that, right? Um, and we talked about mountain moving faith. We talked about it needed to be a directed faith, a doubtless faith, a delighting faith, and a decontaminated faith. And, and then last time we identified ministers that are fake. Ministers that are fake. Mark eleven twenty seven 27 through 33. How can you tell if a servant of God is not really a servant of God. And we're talking about those Jewish leaders there. Well, they sell their ethics instead of separating from enemies. They lay traps instead of learning truth. They ignore proof instead of investigating possibilities. They predict reaction instead of proclaiming righteousness. And they claim ignorance instead of confessing incorrectness. Now, we go into Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 verses 1 through 12. We'll read that, we'll pray, and then we'll jump right in. And Jesus began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him. "'and beat him, and sent him away empty. "'And again he sent unto them another servant. "'And at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, "'and sent him away shamefully handled.' And again, he sent another, and, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Now, verses 4 and 5, when you put the three gospel accounts together and you look underneath the English, you find that, that these weren't just, you know, hitting somebody with a stick. These were lacerations. Some of these guys were flayed open. Some of these guys had their heads bashed in. I mean, this was not, this was, this was a violent situation and an ugly situation. Verse 6, having it, therefore, one son, his well-beloved... He sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Gracious Father, would you help us now as we move ever closer to Calvary in the Gospel of Mark? We're within days of it now. Um, Lord, I just ask that you would just help me to rightly divide your word of truth. May we glean exactly what we need from it. Apply it as you would have us to, Lord, and be the better for it. There's a host of people in our church and in our school that are battling illnesses. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd give them help tonight. Perhaps some of them are home watching online. I pray you'd encourage them and be with them tonight. Help me, Lord. Thank you that I'm feeling better tonight. I appreciate that. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help me to make full proof of that opportunity. More than anything tonight, may Jesus be lifted up and made much of. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Now, I failed to do this when we entered into chapter 11. I meant to, but we had kind of, the outline had kind of taken a turn. But when we, when we looked at the Gospel of Mark, you remember way back when we started this thing, we divided Mark into big sections, and you have the servant's identity. That's what we, that's what we covered. That was in chapter 1. Um, and by the way, the theme of the book of Mark is Jesus, the suffering servant. That's, that's what is presented in this Gospel. Um, And that was chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Then chapter 1, verses 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 52, you have the servant's ministry, the servant's ministry. Then in chapter 11, we began the servant's solemnity, the servant's solemnity. He is about to move into taking our sin upon himself, and he's issuing these final warnings and and thoughts before he goes to Calvary. Uh, In case you're wondering, when we get into chapter 14, we look at the servant's agony, And then in chapter 16, the servant's victory. So those are the five divisions of the gospel of Mark that we're using. There's other ways to divide it, but we thought that would work for us. Um, And so now what's happening is Jesus is following up his confrontation with these fake ministers by teaching three parables. It's so important when you read the gospels that that you you get a whole picture, as much as God will give you, throughout the four gospels. Um, And in this, this particular uh, parable that we're reading about tonight is in three of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and when I, uh, one thing that I like to use a lot, and if you don't have one, I recommend you get one, and that is a chronological Bible. Um, now, for, if you use the King James, as I do, um, the Reese's Chronological Bible is an excellent resource. Excellent resource. You can find a used copy online very, very inexpensively. But there are all kinds that are available, uh, and they all basically do the same thing. And what they do here is they harmonize the Gospels. They put them all together for you, and so you can read each Gospel account one right after the other, and it fills in a lot of blanks for you. Because remember, the Gospels don't contradict one another. They complement one another, and they give you the whole picture that God wants you to have. W.A. Criswell called these three parables somber, terrible, and fearful. And if you were a Jew in that day, they were absolutely somber, terrible, and fearful. Um, It's worthwhile for us to see them as a package. And this will give us some context that we need as we read through our passage in Mark chapter 12. So let's do it this way. Um, And you know what? That's one of the slides that gave me problems. So, there's the title. I was going to build up to it, but there it is. Okay. You know what? I don't want you to see it yet. All right. (laughs) So, the one that gives us all three is Matthew. Matthew chapter 21 and chapter 22. You start out with Matthew 21 verses 28 through 31, the parable of the two sons. The parable of the two sons. And John Phillips gives us a good little outline here. That parable is all about responsibility it's all about responsibility. Then chapter 21 verses 32 through 46, which is also the one we're studying here and is also found in Luke chapter 20, is the parable of wicked husbandmen. The parable of the wicked husbandmen. And if the first one is about responsibility, this one's about retribution. Retribution. And then in Matthew 22 verses 1 through 14, you have the parable of the wedding feast, which is about rejection. Which is about rejection. Now, let's, let's get some context here. Jesus has just cursed the fig tree, and now he's referencing a vineyard. And it's worth noting that God has three what we're going to call botanical pictures of Israel. Botanical meaning plant-related. Okay, He has three pictures that he uses plants when it comes to, to Israel. The first is a vine. What does a vine represent? A vine represents Israel as it was in the Old Testament, being planted and cultivated and at times pruned, For the future. Okay, so when you see a vine, you can think of Old Testament Israel as God's working on it. Okay? Then you got a fig. A fig is Israel in Jesus' day. When it rejects, it's Messiah. Okay? But then, and this is my favorite one, you got an olive. And if you read through Romans 11, you find all about that olive. What's an olive? An olive is Israel that is yet to be in the future and the role that we play in that. So you got a vine, a fig, and an olive. Now, in this parable, Jesus is rightfully connecting Israel to the concept of a vineyard. What he's doing is he's reminding them of what God has already done for them in the past, what he's brought them from and to where he's brought them now. What did he do? Well, he planted Israel in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, didn't he? Where did he cultivate Israel, though? Egypt. That's where he grew them. That's where he developed them. And then he transplanted them, just like he would a plant. He transplanted them from Egypt to where? Canaan. And then he planted them in Canaan, and he began to work on them and cultivate them and, 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 and bring them up and teach them and all of those things. And as Jesus presents this parable, it can only end in one way, divided into three points. What is Jesus saying is going to happen? Number one, the destruction of Jerusalem. And it happens not long after in 70 AD when Titus rolls in there. Okay? Number two, the dispersion of the Jews. They're going everywhere. Number three, the dormancy of Jewish faith. It's going dormant. You say, well, they still have faith, not the right faith. The right faith in their coming Messiah, or who has already come, it's dormant right now. It's dormant. Now, it all begins in 70 A.D. It all begins in 70 A.D. with a massacre. Titus comes in and levels the place. Why? Why? because of foolishness. They chose it. The leadership speaking for Israel chose for this massacre to happen. A massacre because of foolishness. And Jesus speaks to that in this parable that we're going to cover tonight. Would you permit me to do this from a theatrical point of view, would you permit me to do that? Not that I'm going to be theatrical, but using the theater. We start, first of all, I might as well put this down. I don't have more slides. Number one, we have a parallel. A parallel. Look at verse number one. "...and began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard." And set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. As soon as he starts telling this parable, anybody who has any Old Testament knowledge at all immediately goes to the book of Isaiah. Hold your place here and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. This is the parallel passage for this. Isaiah chapter 5 verse number 1. Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 1. This is the parallel. And any of them that knew their their scriptures knew that Jesus was referencing this passage. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine... And built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. He looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild or sour grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it, should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you that I will, to my, what I will do what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, they, they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. This was the parallel passage, and they knew that he was referencing this. So that brings us, number two, to the production. This is where we get a little theatrical, to the production. All right? Verse number two. We're back in Mark chapter 12. And at a season he sent to the husband and a servant that he might receive from the husband of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto another, sent to them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him unto also last unto them saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. So in our production, let's start first of all with the scene. Here's the scene. Now this was a common occurrence. What would happen is a landowner would purchase a piece of property, he'd set up a vineyard, he'd build a tower, he'd put a hedge around it, and then he would go off to some other venture, some other other item of business, and he would hire what was called husbandmen to come and to work the land, and they could they could glean from the land, they could live on the land, and the only deal was that after a certain amount of time, usually about 5 years, he could expect to come back and get a cut, a portion of what they worked so they've got in most cases five years before they're ever going to see him that's plenty of time to get everything as it should be and to start getting what they need out of it but then after five years he comes or in this case he sends a servant he says all right it's time to give me what what's rightfully mine and it was 100 percent rightfully ethically morally legally his that's the scene and that was a common scene But we're told by secular historians that it was also common for this kind of thing to happen. They'd worked that land so long, they kind of thought it was theirs. And so they'd try to find ways to maintain it without having to give up that cut. And sometimes they resorted to violence. Now, certainly, good Jews wouldn't do that kind of thing, though. That was, no, 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 we wouldn't do that. But it did happen. So this is a familiar scene. Now we've got the actors. What character represents who? All right, well, the first character, believe it or not, is the vineyard itself. What does the vineyard represent? It represents Israel as God intended. It represents Israel as God intended. The vineyard, hey, fellas, Jews that I'm talking to right now, the vineyard represents what God always wanted for you. But you wouldn't have it. That's what the vineyard represents. Who's the owner? Well, that's an easy one. God the Father. God the Father is the owner of the vineyard. Who are the husbandmen? Faithless Jews. Faithless Jews. Particularly the leadership. Who are the servants? I believe the servants are the Old Testament prophets. Now what do you have? You have two groups of them. You have some that are beaten and some who are killed. The ones who are beaten are those who obviously were beaten, those who are persecuted. Guys like Elijah and Elisha and Micaiah and Malachi and people like that who got a lot of problems and got a lot of kickback and got a lot of persecution and got beat up and everything else, but they weren't martyrs. But then you have the martyrs. You have guys like Isaiah. We're pretty confident he was martyred. Tradition tells us that Manasseh had him killed by sawing him in half, putting him in a log and sawing him in half. What a terrible way to go. Tradition tells us that Jeremiah was eventually stoned to death after all that. I don't know that he was or he wasn't, but it wouldn't surprise me. I'll tell you who I do know was um, uh, Zechariah. Zechariah was murdered. But there's one who I believe to be the last Old Testament prophet. Some people don't agree with me. That's fine. But the last Old Testament prophet in my mind was a martyr, and that was John the Baptist. Okay? So what's Jesus saying? These servants are people that God, the owner, sent to you to tell you what you're supposed to do, and you beat them up or you killed them. Okay? It's interesting. The writer of Hebrews has something interesting to say about that in chapter 11. He talks about those who had miracles happen in their lives, but then in verse 36, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So the actors in our production, you have have Israel, as God intended it, playing the part of the vineyard. God the Father playing the part of the owner. Faithless Jews playing the part of the husbandman. Old Testament prophets playing the part of the servants. But then, who is the son? Well, that's an easy one too. Jesus, the son of God. So we've got our scene, and we've got our actors, but any great production moves to a climax, a zenith, the place where just everything comes to a head and to a point. What's the climax? The owner has sent all of these servants. Some have come back beaten. Some have come back in body bags. He finally says, I'm going to send my son. They will, certainly, they will certainly reverence my son. Now, it's been rightly said, Andy. Nobody would have actually done that. No owner would have sent his son. He'd have come himself with an army behind him. But you do understand that God doesn't do things like we do. Our ways are not his ways, and his ways are not our ways. He's higher than we are, isn't he? Aren't you glad God doesn't do things like we would? What would things be like if you were God? Or if I were God? I'm going to tell you right now, if I were God, there'd be a whole lot of people I, I'd have already smoked. God's efforts are in stark contrast to what any human would have done, and we're glad of that. So that's the climax. He's, he's, he's sending his son. Oh, man, this is, this is the peak of this story. But then, if you've got a good production, there's one more thing. There's a twist. There's a twist. Oh, I didn't see that coming. You, you ever seen a production of some sort? Maybe at a theater? Maybe watching television. And you're like, ooh, I didn't see that coming. By the way, good preachers can do that. They think David gives us a master at it. He'll head you this way and all of a sudden, ah, he got you. Ooh, I didn't see that coming. Well, here's the twist. Here comes the son and they know he's the son. And they kill him. What? They kill him. Why do they kill him? Because they believe in doing so, it's going to secure for them the rights to that property. Now, here's the thing. Anybody that's watching this production would say, what a bunch of idiots. That's the worst thing they could have possibly done. He sent his son. They're they're fortunate enough that he didn't come after they sent the first servant back, beat up and bruised and battered. He sent his son and they killed him. What are they thinking? And I can only see one possible reason that they thought this was a good idea. Because if you're these husbandmen, and you look down the road after sending back all these servants, battered or even dead, who do you expect to show up? The owner. The only reason that they could think that his son would come instead is the owner is either incapacitated or dead. Surely, That's his son. He must be dead. He must be out of the picture. He must not be a factor anymore. So if we kill the son, there's nobody left to claim this, and it's ours. That can be the only reason they thought this was a good idea. And can I tell you something? That falls right into line with why Jesus was killed. Because it must be Anytime somebody rejects the son, it can only be because they believe that the father is not a factor. If you really believe that there's a God in heaven who will judge us for our sin, how can you not accept his son? But if you don't, if you reject him, and for all intents and purposes kill him in your life, That must mean you don't have much fear of a father that's involved. Right? Man, what a twist. So that's the production. So we saw a parallel. We saw a production. And then in verse 9, we see the pronouncement. Verse 9. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. This is where it is super helpful to use all three of the gospel accounts because a careful reading reveals a specific order. Will you do this for me? Will you hold your place here and go to Matthew 21? I want you to see this. You put all three together, and you get the whole exchange. Jesus asks this question. And when you read Mark, it appears as though Jesus answers his own question, but actually not immediately. Mark chapter 21, verse number 40. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? What verse 41 say? they say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto another husband, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. So the initial answer is given by the Jews that are listening. But then in Mark, in our passage, Jesus then rehearses. He repeats what they said to them. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. So let me, let me put them together for you. Give you a narrative here. When the Lord of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? And they say, Oh, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. And then Jesus responds, Yes, he will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. But then in Luke chapter 20, head over there, Luke chapter 20. We get one more piece here. This pronouncement. The initial answer is given by the Jews listening. Then Jesus rehearses to them what they just said, and then the Jews realize what's being said even by their own lips, and they respond with absolute horror. Verse verse 16 of chapter 20. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. So put all three together. What's going to happen? Oh, they're going to come and destroy. The the, the father's going to come and destroy these husbandmen. Jesus says, that's right. He's going to come and he's going to utterly destroy them. And then they go, oh. They come to understand what they said and what he said. Oh, no. God forbid! That's what happens in this exchange. That's why you ought to get a chronological Bible, or at the very least a Harmony of the Gospels, because you put all three of them together, and you see how big a deal this exchange is. Simply put, these Jews have pronounced their own doom. Hmm. Kind of sad end, isn't it? But it's not. You see, we have a parallel and a production and a pronouncement, but then in verses ten and eleven, we have a proclamation. We have a proclamation. Leave verse ten. We're back in Mark chapter twelve, verse number ten. We'll give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus' references Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. It was clearly a messianic psalm, but more than that, it was what was called a Hallel psalm. It was a psalm that they would sing on their way up to the temple for Passover. They had been singing this very psalm just a couple of days before. It would have been very familiar to them. So what's Jesus saying here? They've pronounced their own doom. In fact, Luke Luke gives us a little bit, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, and whomsoever shall fall will grind him to powder. So Luke, Luke seems to like to just make it even worse. But even now, what is Jesus saying in citing Psalm 118? Here's what he's saying. Don't you see it? That stone that was set at naught? It's me. I'm the Messiah. And you have pronounced your doom, but I'm here to proclaim to you that even now, even at this moment, any of you under the sound of my voice that will receive me, you can still have me, even now. Yes, Israel as a nation must undergo this chastisement. And the individual leaders, many of them have gone into what we would call a reprobate mind. They've committed an unpardonable sin. They're not coming back. But let me tell you, anybody in that crowd that's not of that state, they can still take their Messiah. Sadly, verse 12 tells us what they, how they responded. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him. And went their way. What's going to happen now? God is not going to forsake the Jews, but this whole paradigm is going to shift. And they're going to, after his resurrection, after Pentecost, they're going to move into what we call the church age. Some people call it the age of grace. I don't particularly like that term because God's always been a God of grace. But we enter into the church age in which the focus is on the church. But ultimately, God's going to come back to the vine. But when he does, it's going to look different than before. And the focus is going to be squarely where it should have been all along. And we see that in John chapter 15. What did Jesus say in verse number one? I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. The focus will all be on Jesus. Now, what happens next? Verse 13, they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. Yet again, these unholy alliances, people that normally don't get along at all, You catch him in his words, and yet again, they try to trap him. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? A good passage as we near election day, isn't it? How much is Caesar's and how much is God's? But for now, we think on a massacre that happened because of foolishness. It didn't have to. It didn't have to.